Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Good morning. How are you doing? You doing all right? All right, good. You know what? It's so humbling to be up here speaking to you this morning. Um, the best way to, to learn something is to teach it. Have you heard this before? Yeah. So I'm the lucky one. <laughs> what a blessing to be teaching the Word. A much lesser way of learning something is to sit and just listen to it. Sorry about that. Mm. Uh, but of course, there are some things you can do to be a more active listener. Get out your Bibles. We're going to be flipping through it a little bit. Uh, get out your notepad. I'm used to teaching in classroom settings, so I'm almost tempted to say, interrupt me at any time with a question. <laughs> but maybe that's breaking genre a little too much. So instead, I'll say, hold your questions until the end. <clears throat> okay, I just want to pray really quickly and bless, bless the message. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to speak to your church. I pray that you stir our hearts this morning, that you give us ears to hear what you would say to us. Help me not to get in the way. Speak to us both as individuals and as a community, Lord, that we may know and understand a little bit better what it means to seek your kingdom where we are today in Malmö, Sweden. Amen. Amen. So I'd like to ask you first, have you ever experienced something so beautiful that it kind of broke your heart a little bit? Have you ever experienced this? Could have been a song that was just so beautiful, or a novel, or baby pictures of your children. Adam accidentally found a picture of Ella from about a year and a half ago yesterday, and he said, oh, look at her, she was so cute with the baby. And then he said, oh, that baby's gone. <laughs> oh, heart, that's kind of heartbreaking. It's beautiful, but it's heartbreaking, right? I remember uh, when I was 17 visiting an art museum in Dublin, and I saw a painting from Caravaggio, an Italian painter who painted this from 1602. It's huge. And I remember this was one moment in my life where I sat there just astounded at the beauty of this painting. I mean, he was a master at this kind of light and dark technique. And I sat there for, I mean, I could have sat there for hours. I was captivated by the expression on their faces, the way the light kind of bounces off of this painting and the armor. I couldn't believe a human in 1602 produced this. Amazing. I've had similar experience, though, with a Rothko an abstract painting with just a few colors, sitting there kind of getting lost in the, in the way the colors kind of ebb and flow and transition into the next one. Or, or here's another example. Three summers ago, my mom, brother, husband Adam, uh, and myself road tripped to the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Anyone heard of the Grand Canyon? Yeah, there's a little hype around it, okay? And it's one of few things in life that I feel actually lived up to the hype and even surpassed my expectations a little bit. 
I remember we had driven into the national park, which is a big area, not just the canyon, and we hadn't actually seen the canyon yet. We were driving along this road, and there was like a, a wall of trees, and we understood that the canyon was just behind those trees. So you can imagine, none of us had ever been to the Grand Canyon before. We were driving along, the atmosphere in the car was kind of joyous and we were anticipating and Adam was making jokes about every pothole. Is that it? Is that the Grand Canyon? We're waiting for a hole in the ground, maybe that's it. And then all of a sudden there was a break in the trees and we saw our first glimpse of it. And the car went silent, except for maybe a <gasps> We kind of lost our breath. There are only a few things in life that prompt Adam to drop the jokes. <laughs> but the Grand Canyon, in all of its grandeur, really did. Yeah, <laughs> amen. You know, whatever we had been joking about felt completely pointless after we, we saw this. Whatever else the conversation uh, took us, pointless. We were confronted with this astounding beauty. And I remember the next couple days just soaking in this experience and sometimes standing there and just trying to burn it into my eyes, you know, trying to memorize all the little cracks and crevices and the way the red would sometimes become orange and brown. And I just wanted so badly to not forget any detail. Have you ever had this experience? You're experiencing something and you know, I'm going to I'm going to want to remember this while you're in it. And it's like you're trying to be absorbed by the experience or, or to have it absorb you. You're trying to become one. But you know, it's a bit bittersweet because you know while you're there that it's going to end. It's going to end. And you can't help but be overtaken by this longing. Oh, I don't want this to end. And it hurts a little bit when it does, right? That's what, that's what great beauty, that's the effect it can have. You know, last week, Pastor Chris Brown spoke about experience, experiencing God, and he used the metaphor of taste. And it's really hard to describe the taste of something to someone who's never tasted it before. Well, it's the same. I mean, these pictures, my explanation, they can't replace your experience of, of the thing, right? But I'm sure you have your own examples of this kind of, this time where beauty kind of punctuates into your everyday life. It's part of what makes life as we know it so beautiful. And here's the thing, I don't think that the way we experience beauty or nostalgia, memories of something beautiful, I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, everybody is longing for something of ultimate beauty. Everybody's longing for that. And that longing comes through in different ways for different people. You know, C.S. Lewis, in a beautiful sermon called The Weight of Glory, he calls this experience of great beauty and nostalgia a cheat. They're a cheat. They're good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. 
an echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. They're good images, but they're not the thing. So we're, we're long, everyone's longing. We're longing for this thing, this flower, this country. And so this, bring me, this brings me to my message today, which is titled, Found a Home in Exile. And I'm going to show you how this longing actually connects to this amazing theme that runs throughout the Bible of exile. So you could say that the Bible is in one way fundamentally about humanity's longing for something other than what we are and have right now. We're longing for this ultimate beauty, as I said, or another way to put it, for shalom. You know, shalom is a Hebrew word. It's usually translated as peace in your Bible, but it means so much more. It's, it's a wholeness, completeness, prosperity, and, and welfare, and tranquility. It's, it's the whole thing. And so, as the Bible has a lot to say about this topic, we as Christians have a lot to say about what this feeling is that's so universal uh, to humanity and the appropriate response to it. You'll see that there's not one specific passage or verse in the Bible that targets this. Um, so as I mentioned, it's a theme that runs through the whole thing, right from the, the beginning to the very end. And don't worry, I'm not going to take you through the entire Bible today. Uh, but I am going to skim a little bit, especially the Old Testament, because I really think it's important that you have in your mind the general narrative arc of the Old Testament so that we can better understand what Jesus does with this, with this theme in the New Testament. Okay? So if you think briefly with me about Genesis 1 through 11... Do you know that's the history of humanity in your Bible? Genesis 1 through 11. So in the first couple chapters, we get this amazing story of creation. It's an overflow of God's goodness and love. His character, his very character just overflows with creation and, and everything we know and ourselves are born out of that. And for a couple very short chapters, at the beginning of the Bible, we were in our home, living in complete wholeness and oneness with God, with each other, and with creation. Wow, for a, for a couple of pages. <laughs> and then, you know the story in Genesis 3, humans decide to partner with evil, and as a consequence, they're exiled, they're sent out of the garden to an existence now separated from God. So Eden is this picture of heaven and earth united. And now heaven and earth are driven apart and separated. So instead of living in God's kingdom, where we as created beings submit to him and enjoy this abundance and overflow of all good things, now we're living in human-made kingdoms where humans decide what is good and what is evil, and exalt themselves while committing terrible actions against each other. So in this part of Genesis, this leads to chapter 11, which is Babylon. And Babylon becomes this kind of symbol for human kingdoms throughout history. And of course, these chapters are also foreshadowing Israel's historical exile 
to Babylon. Okay, so you can already see here something's going on in the way the authors fashioned the Old Testament. They're building this theme that's going to have big, crucial implications for, for Jesus and the New Testament authors too. So we can say that the core of humanity's problem, as defined in Genesis, is that we are earthlings. We were made for this earth. We were given dominion to rule and take care of it and, and be fruitful in it. And yet this earth right now is so, so, so far from its original state of shalom and ultimate goodness. Right? You know this. You've experienced the brokenness, the messiness of this place. And when I mean it, I mean the whole thing. I mean the earth and us. Right? So you see, okay, we need a solution to this problem. And this is the whole thrust of the Bible. It sets up this big problem at the beginning. And then it says, okay, there's, there's going to be a solution. The solution, the Old Testament tells us, will come through the line of Abraham specific person and a specific nation. And it's so significant that his Abraham's story and all of Israel's story is the story of wandering and slavery and some exile. Some good parts too, but there's a lot of slavery and wandering and exile. Okay, so, so check it out. Are you ready to do this with me? We're going to skim a little bit. I'm going to go through the narrative arc of the rest of the Old Testament here. So Abraham and his family are actually from, originally, an area in Babylon. So they're already kind of immigrants to this place called Huron. Uh, and they're called out of their, of their home, come out of there by God, and go to this place called Canaan, the promised land. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Okay. Abraham says, okay, I'll do that. He doesn't actually get to see the promised land. And in fact, three to four generations after him, his descendants are enslaved in Egypt. Joseph's story, you know the deal. Okay, well, that's a bummer. But they get to come out. They are freed. In Exodus, the story of Moses. Woohoo! they're brought out. Hooray, the sea splits. They walk through. The Egyptian army is, is swallowed up by the sea. Do they get to go to the promised land yet? No. No, then they have to wander in the wilderness before they actually get to the promised land. And then they get there. Woohoo! No. It's not all rainbows and butterflies yet. They have to fight. Their neighbors are unfriendly. But then they, you know, they establish themselves. But even that period of establishing themselves is difficult. They've got a period with no kings. Tribal tension. But by 1350 BC, whew, Israel's best time begins. This is the golden era. This is David and his son Solomon. And Solomon kind of puts Israel on the international map. And he builds this wonderful city and this splendorous temple. It's beautiful. They're getting kind of close to experiencing something like Eden. Things seem pretty right. They're in good relationship with God, and they're experiencing abundance. But that's not the end. There's major disagreement again after King Solomon dies, and Israel basically has a civil war. Splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom is called Israel, capital Samaria. The southern kingdom is Judah, capital Jerusalem. So here's what happens. 722, the northern kingdom and Samaria falls to Assyria. They're exiled. Now, they've already split. That's not great. And now the northern kingdom falls and they're exiled to another ruling power. Um, some hundred years after that, Assyria falls to Babylon. And Babylon says, okay, now we're going we're gonna to finally take over the southern kingdom and get Jerusalem. So after some waves of already starting to exile uh, Israelites out of Jerusalem in 586 BC, and you should know this date. This is a key date for the Israelites that shapes so much of their worldview and their perspective. 586 BC, Babylon totally destroys Jerusalem, burns the temple, and hauls off thousands of Israelites in chains to Babylon. So some of you in this room have personal experience, either your, your own or perhaps your family, of being forced out of your country by violent means. So you would know firsthand that this is completely devastating. It's identity shaking, right? Their temple was destroyed. Their whole identity is wrapped up in the temple. That's their whole, their practices as a people are all centered around the temple and it's gone. And they're taken somewhere else. This had a fundamental effect on the way Israel starts to view themselves and the way they start to connect their story back to the story of all humanity that starts in Genesis 1. Okay, you with me so far? You doing good? Okay. So right now, Israel is geographically exiled, right? And they're longing for their home, and they want to go back and restore it. And hey, they do get, they get to go back. Good news. Some 70 years after they're in exile, Babylon has fallen to Persia, the next great world empire. And Persia has this policy of letting displaced people go back to their homes. So they send them back. Okay, go home. Wow, wonderful. It's this high point uh, in the Old Testament narrative. They get to go back. This will be the solution to Israel's exile. And we're wondering as we read, will it be the solution to all of humanity's exile that was set up in Genesis? Remember, we're told the solution's going to come through the Israelites. They're going to go back. It's going to be restored. And then we see the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which tell us the process of rebuilding not only the structures, the temple, and the wall of the city, but also the Israelites, the Jewish people's identity. Remember, they've been scattered and displaced. They have to remember who, who are we? Who are we and why did this happen to us? And what does the future look like? And then they start wrestling with another issue. Some of them start to feel like, wait a second, this place that we've been longing for, it's not quite like we remembered it. It still doesn't feel quite right. Look at Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. This is in the middle of temple building. It's a joyful period. 
people are celebrating, they're worshiping, they're playing instruments. And we see this. Verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Look what happens in verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this new one being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. How odd. What a scene. We expected this to be a joyous event, and it is. There are people shouting with joy, but not, not everyone. Some people are so heartbroken. The people who have seen Solomon's temple and what it was like, it was amazing. They realized this, this is a shadow. This is not it. Is this as good as it's going to get? I think this is such a striking picture, the indistinguishable weeping from joy. It's like, you know, we as humans have that experience of our own lives, right? This simultaneous or almost, or at least we've got periods of weeping and joy. It's the human experience. It's like, yeah, this is my life. This is my home. I'm made for earth. Oh, but in some terrible, horrible ways, it's just so not right. So not only are the structures themselves not quite right, the temple, but the, the Jews are still under Persian rule. They're technically not free. Their neighbors, again, they never have good neighbors. The neighbors are hostile. But perhaps worst of all, the Jews still aren't always acting like God's covenant people. We see in the book of Nehemiah, which on the one hand gives this picture of Nehemiah as this amazing leader. And you often hear sermons on Nehemiah um, kind of based on leadership. And he is an amazing leader filled with faith and energy, and he leads the rebuilding of the city walls in record time. But that's not actually the main takeaway of this book. Look at how it ends, chapter 13. The people gather around to read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Remember, they need some kind of re-education about who we are. So they go back and read their people's texts, and they commit themselves anew to following God's laws. Wonderful. Again, this is like a, a high moment. But then, Nehemiah goes off to Persia on a business trip, and when he comes back, He's heartbroken. The Jews have broken all their new commitments and their promises. And he has to go around rebuking and punishing and trying to set things right again. I mean, toward the very end of this chapter, he gets so angry. He says, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. This is not a leader. <laughs> this is not a leader handbook right here. 
No, but you see, it is showing us that something is so wrong still. The Jews are home. But exile did not fix a fundamental problem with their penchant for doing what they're not supposed to do. So you'll see, the end of the Old Testament is still looking forward to something else, to another deliverer, a David-Moses figure from Israel's line who will make things right and deal with sin and evil, Israel's own and the nations around them, and restore this place to its full potential so that it is again fully reunited with heaven and God's kingdom. That's what they were hoping for. Notice that they weren't hoping to leave their place. This is the right place. It's just not right yet. So instead of geographical exiles, there are now two other types of exiles that they're experiencing. They're spiritual exiles, meaning they're not in right relationship with God, and they're exiles in time. They're at the right place, but it's not right yet. Okay, are you doing okay? That was the Old Testament in a nutshell. So now you don't have to read that. <clears throat> Just kidding. <laughs> read the Old Testament. It's awesome. <clears throat> and actually, if you read it with this understanding that there are some big themes like this that are woven through the whole story, it helps you put the little stories in focus. That is a really good habit when you're reading your Bible. Zoom out every now and then. What's the big story? How does this little one fit in exactly? Okay. So fast forward now to 1 Peter, New Testament. I want to show you this kind of peculiar way his letter opens. So just 1 Peter, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Wait a second. Peter is not writing to displaced people. He is writing to people who are living where they were born. They are not geographical exiles. And yet he calls them exiles on purpose. He's totally connecting back to the way Israel's story has built the meaning of exile, where you can be an exile even if you're not geographically one. You can be another type of exile. In the next chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11, you'll see it again. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So I hope this is starting to make some sense now. It's like saying that as Christians, this identity marker as a foreigner and an exile still applies because our allegiance is not first and foremost to the place we live or the worldly powers that rule it. As Christians, we are required to fundamentally question the identity that we're born with as a Swede or an American or a South African or an Indian or even a Norwegian shuttle. 
We're not geographical exiles in the same way that the Jews weren't when they returned to Jerusalem. We were made for this place, and restoration has started. We're going to get there, but it's not finished. We're still waiting. But what are we waiting for exactly? And why didn't Jesus' death and resurrection fully reconcile our exile status? We'll, step, we'll call it step one Jesus and step two Jesus. Okay, step one Jesus, he fixed the problem of the spiritual exile, of the broken covenant relationship with God and people. He reckoned with sin and evil once and for all. And, you know, crucially, when Jesus walked among us, he localized the problem of human exile not in an external power. He didn't walk around saying, hey, Rome, that's your big problem. And Rome is, of course, another Babylon. In fact, in some metaphorical ways, Jesus even spoke of Jerusalem as another Babylon. Wait a second, Jerusalem is supposed to be God's city. You see, human kingdoms are always iterations of Babylon in one way or another. Genesis, in the beginning, sets this up for us. But Jesus didn't say, look, those people are the problems, and if we get rid of them, we'll get rid of the problem. And this makes Christianity so fundamentally different from a lot of other worldviews and political prescriptions for how to fix the world. You know, some other people will come and say, oh, if I've got the solution. Just get rid of this, fix this. Maybe we have to cut those people out. But then we're going to have utopia. Jesus said instead, look, your heart is in exile. Evil is so entangled with the human heart that each and every one of you needs a new one in order to be able to be in right relationship with God. And yeah, those people over there, they need the same thing. As Tim Mackey, Bible scholar and leader of something called the Bible Project, he says, exile is the human condition. We all repeat this pattern of human corruption leading to Babylon's we can't escape. But you see, Jesus' death and resurrection is meant to break this pattern. And this breaking is only possible with a new heart. doesn't matter what, what Babylon tells you. The only way to break this pattern is with a new heart from Jesus Christ. You see, your spiritual longing, this longing we spoke of in the beginning, your existential anxiety that maybe pulls you toward beauty or nostalgia as the solution. They're just pointing you to who you're really longing for. Jesus. He is the deliverer from the line of Abraham, Moses, and David that Israel and all of humanity is longing for. He's the home for our hearts that are spiritually exiled. Through Jesus, we're not only trans we're transformed by the Holy Spirit that now lives within us. We don't have to go to a temple anymore to commune with God. And accepting this is to recognize that God loves you. All of creation was created out of an overflow of God's character, 
which is all good and all love. And if you accept Jesus, you live in that reality. What step one Jesus didn't do was solve our exiles in time problem. Okay? That is, of course, Jesus' second return when he comes back and fully reckons with all Babylons and once again fully reunites heaven and earth. The biblical authors talk about this new reality sometimes as the new Jerusalem, and you should understand why after our Old Testament overview. But let's read a description quickly of what we're waiting for as told in Isaiah 65, verse 17. He writes, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Notice, not, I will take you away from this earth to a completely different place. But he will create a new one, new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years, the one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long for the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. You know, that C.S. Lewis quote I opened up with mentioned both beauty and nostalgia as good images of what we really want. And we, we as Christians, as, as Bible readers, would say what we really want is something like this vision in Isaiah. You can see another description in Revelation 21. And you know, nostalgia is a funny thing. It's a sentimental longing, sometimes defined as a kind of homesickness. A longing for home as it used to be, or at least as, as we remember it to be. A study from several years ago from Southampton University in the UK found that nostalgia can have a number of positive benefits. It can make you feel less lonely, less anxious, can even help to alleviate some of that existential anxiety and inspire you to take action in the present and see the future as a little brighter. In fact, the Old Testament authors were using nostalgia, the memory of David and Solomon, to look forward to the future, 
but they knew that what is to come would be so much better. But here's the thing. I noticed in the study's conclusion of nostalgia, after they go through the positive benefits, they say this. We have shown that nostalgia increases positivity, strengthens meaningfulness, fosters sociality, and assages ex existential anxiety. But these benefits may be only transient. A legitimate question concerns nostalgia's capacity to provide structural, long-lasting solutions to self-negativity, meaninglessness, or existential terror, loneliness, or isolation. The benefits are for a moment. So perhaps C.S. Lewis really gets it when he writes that these moments of beauty and nostalgia are pointers to something else. They're not answers in themselves. The Israelites understood this. We can't go back. We're looking forward to something better. And oh, how much better it is than anything we can imagine or anything we've experienced in the past. But those who put hope in the images, they'll be left brokenhearted. So maybe you're here today and this is resonating a little bit with you. Even if you've already met Jesus, sometimes we can get too focused on looking backward. Oh, it was so much better back then. But that's not where your hope really is. So the appropriate Christian response to this longing is to keep it in perspective. To enjoy the scent of a flower we haven't found, but to stay focused on our true hope and what we're really, who and what we're really waiting for. Jesus and the complete reuni reuniting of heaven and earth, God's kingdom. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, I'll skip to verse 4, says, For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. This tent is the here and now. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We're longing for that so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So here Paul's describing the longing as a kind of groan. It's a burden while we're here, even to those who have found their spiritual home in Jesus Christ. So how in the world do we go about living in this tension if we're groaning? You know, unfortunately, sometimes Christians fall on two ends of the spectrum. On the one end... Some will respond by saying, where's the escape hatch? Let me get out of here. Let me just, I'm praying to die so I can, I can be beamed up to heaven. Some start to wonder, do I need to plan my own escape? And maybe, maybe we should retreat and isolate, doing our best not to have contact with the world so as not to be tainted. And then we have the other end of the spectrum, Christians who are like, hey, this world, it's what we have right now. So let's go ahead and seek out the beauty, even though it's bittersweet. And, you know, otherwise just be kind of absorbed into the culture. And maybe we can see where Jesus and God's kingdom might fit in. Both of those responses are bad responses. There's another option besides these two extremes. And here's where some Old Testament wisdom given to the Israelites in geographical exile is still completely relevant today in our position in exile. 
Jeremiah 29.4 says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's how you should live. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers, don't decrease. And oh yeah, seek the peace, the shalom, and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name, and I have not sent them. So check it out. This does not say plan your escape, keep your head down until further notice, or start plotting revolution. It says instead, root yourself, plant gardens, and be fruitful. This is Genesis imagery. This is saying live like the kingdom is here. Establish yourselves. And oh yeah, pray for those horrible, violent people that ripped you out of your city. Pray for them. Pray for the place, because if it prospers, so will you. You know, I've heard some Christians pray for the ultimate destruction of evil places. That's not what Jeremiah says. He keeps going in verse 8, telling the Israelites to be highly skeptical of Babylonian wisdom. Don't listen to it. It's not from God. It won't lead to prospering. So this means, of course, that sometimes while we're going about our days, going to work, tending our gardens, picking up our children, that sometimes we'll be confronted with a Babylonian request to do something or enticed by some part of Babylonian culture that we just cannot conform to. If you want to see an awesome picture of living out this ethic, look at the book of Daniel. That's for another message. But the point is, this picture in Jeremiah of how to live in exile is neither extreme isolation nor total assimilation. It's more like limited cooperation. I'm almost done here. Theologian Daniel Smith Christopher has written extensively about exile. He puts it this way. It's so good. I have to read it. He says, the nonviolent peace ethic of the Hebrew exile is a practice of radical doubt towards the self-proclaimed power and religion of the empire. It is rooted in the conviction that God's covenant people are the primary vehicle of God's work in the world and that the nation-state is not the center of the universe. This is the ethic of the exiled Hebrew wisdom warrior, a nonviolent resistance based on the wise awareness that the empires of this age, despite their attempts to convince you otherwise, are not of ultimate significance. So the cool thing is you can trace this wisdom warrior ethic right through to Jesus, and his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, for example, or in Matthew 22 when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, go ahead, but give to God what is God's. And what is God? What is God's? Everything. Your whole self and your whole life. 
Combine these with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which says to go out and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them the ways of Jesus Christ. And that's a pretty solid picture for your purpose in life right now. As, as someone still living in exile. We are to create beauty that points to God's kingdom, to establish ourselves and be fruitful and do our work well and live according to Jesus' kingdom ethics, which means sometimes standing up to Babylonian culture and wisdom. And we should tell people that their longings for something better have a home in Jesus and that he makes it possible to break the Babylon cycle with a new heart and a better way to live. And at the same time, we're careful never to be truly satisfied. We're still exiles in time, waiting with great anticipation for what is to come, like waiting on the edge of your chair for a glimpse of the Grand Canyon. We're a future-looking people who know that nothing in the past or in our imaginations can come close to what God has in store for us. Amen? The band can come up as I close with a prayer. I'd like to pray for three groups of people today and for Malmö. So you can go ahead and close your eyes. The first group I would like to pray for, those who would say, you know what, I feel overtaken with a longing for something that I haven't quite been able to place. It's a kind of ever-present loneliness or existential anxiety and I've tried filling this need with beauty or nostalgia, but they only partially make it go away for a short time. Friend, your heart is in exile and Jesus is calling you home. Come home. Tell Jesus how you feel. Tell him you're lonely. He wants to comfort the lonely. Tell him you're tired of longing. Tell him you've realized that this life is meaningless without him, ultimately. Tell him you want to get to know him, what it feels like to come home. Thank you, Lord, that you're ministering to people. Or maybe you're realizing today that your heart is not at all at peace because it's tangled up with sin, and you realize that you've contributed to Babylon. You might even be a Christian but you've lost your focus. That's the thing. You can accept Christ once, but choose to abandon his kingdom principles. And that evil that entangles humanity can entangle you again. Maybe you've been praying for the destruction of Babylon instead of its shalom. Or maybe you've tried to take kingdom building into your own hands instead of just letting Jesus' light and love shine through you. And as a result, create pockets of heaven instead you're creating pockets, contributing to Babylon. Jesus is calling you home again, too. Tell him you're sorry. Tell him you want to refocus your lens on him. You've realized that human strength is futile, and human kingdoms are doomed. Tell him you want his kingdom in your life again. Thank you, Lord, that the angels are rejoicing when people come home. Christ followers, you wisdom warriors, 
Jesus is our one true home while we're still in exile. But it's hard to live in Babylon. It's hard to live as exiles in time, in the midst of brokenness and pain. And sometimes our bodies don't work right. We feel like exiles in our own bodies, and sometimes we mess up. May God give us all courage. Lord, give us courage and wisdom to live out our days. Give us discernment and perspective. Give us eyes to see people the way Jesus sees people. A heart for the brokenhearted, that we may long all the more for Jesus' second coming and total restoration. Take heart, church family. Babylon is fading, but the word is eternal. Our human-made kingdoms, they will fade to dust. But God's kingdom shimmers bright into the future. If your sojourn in Babylon has made you tired, seek rest in him. He is where your help comes from. And seek encouragement from your church family. Stand with me as we pray for Malma. I want everyone to pray. We would be remiss not to pray for Malma and Sweden, our immediate Babylon. Lord, your kingdom come here in Malma as it is in heaven, Father. Your will be done here. Lift your voices with me, church. May Malma prosper and find true shalom. Thank you, Lord. Open the eyes of this city, Father, to your reality. No true peace will be found in political movements or our own individual kingdoms, Lord. We seek your presence, your peace in Manla, your kingdom in Manla. Your name be exalted here, Father. Pray for your areas of personal influence, church. Pray for your workplace, your families, and your neighborhood, Lord. We're believing you. Thank you, Father, that you have not forsaken us. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that we have a spiritual home in you, Father. Help us to live out that reality, to create pockets of your kingdom, even here, Lord, that others may see and your name would be lifted high. Amen.